Please grab your Bibles and open them to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. For as long as I can remember, I have admired missionaries. Does anyone admire missionaries? All the way back to when I was a small, small child, I can remember attending the, the annual missionary conference at the church that I grew up in as a grade school student, listening to stories about how the gospel was making its way around the world and impacting lives and, and changing people, saving people from the grips of hell and sin and death. I remember hearing stories about how the gospel was making inroads into specific places like Kenya and the Philippines and Poland and Argentina and Quito, Ecuador, where my aunt served at HCJB, heralding Christ Jesus' blessings, the radio station there in Quito. But the missionary that influenced me above and beyond more than anyone else was a man that some of you know. His name is Dr. Luis Palau. Luis Palau came to the church that I grew up in and he spoke and he made a, a deep and lasting impact on my life. And little did I know that when I was in seminary, Dr. Palau would be one of my preaching professors. Now, when you think about the missionaries throughout all of church history, you can't help but be humble when you consider the likes of servants like Hudson Taylor and William Tyndale and David Brainerd and Jonathan Edwards. Yes, Jonathan Edwards was indeed a missionary. But the missionary who stands head and shoulders above all of these mighty men of God is a man by the name of the Apostle Paul. Now we have seen much thus far in our study in the book of Romans about Paul in these opening verses of Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. And we have seen that Paul has a love for the gospel. He has a love for the gospel of God. He has a love for the nations. He has a love for the Ethnos, if you remember that term, for every tribe and every nation and every people group. And here's what I want to tell you this morning. As we move out of the preamble, he's just getting started. He's just warming up. The title of the message this morning is A Heart for the Nations, The Marks of a Stalwart Missionary. And I want you to see the, the five marks that make Paul the Apostle just that kind of a missionary. And I want you to see that God is calling every boy and every girl and every man and every woman who names the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be a missionary. And I can just almost, I can, I can sense what some of you are feeling. You're feeling like this, oh boy, here it comes. And you would be right to think that. Because God is calling every follower of Jesus Christ to be a missionary. He's calling us all to partner with Him to help fulfill the Great Commission. Now, before we move in to discover what those five marks involve, I want to make some observations about those marks. 
I want to make four observations, and as we take the next couple of weeks to unpack these marks, I want to remind you that these marks are simple marks. Say, whew, simple marks. Secondly, I want you to know that these are absolutely necessary. Third, these marks are obtainable. Everything that we're going to talk about today and next week are things that by God's grace, that are obtainable in your Christian life. And probably the most important observation I will make this morning about these marks of a stalwart missionary is this. These marks are biblical. Now, in this unit of Scripture... We get an inside look at the heart of the Apostle Paul. We've already discovered, as I, as I mentioned a moment ago, the, the heart of the Apostle Paul in the powerful prologue. We can almost sense, at least I can sense, the, the anticipation that is building up between verses 7 and 8. He finishes this powerful preamble and you, you, you sense that it's building up. He has so much on his heart. He has so much on his mind. He is clearly set on, on embracing and promoting and proclaiming the gospel with the, with the Christians in the city of Rome. I think you would agree with me that this is a man who is riveted on God. This is a man who is riveted on the gospel of God. Now, a person who has a heart for the nations, as I've already described, can best be described as a man who is a stalwart missionary. I want to have you stand to your feet, and we're going to read beginning in verse 8, and we're going to go all the way to verse 15, although we won't be able to unpack all of these verses together. This is God's Word, Romans 1.8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let's pray together. Lord, we're looking forward to digging into your word. We're looking forward to uncovering this first mark of a stalwart missionary. Thank you so much, God, for Paul's zeal. Thank you for his knowledge. Thank you for his love for the nations. Indeed, he has a heart for every tribe and every nation, every people group, and he is such an amazing model. We thank you for the passion that we're going to see in this text. And I pray, God, that you would be prompting missionaries here in this place. I pray that you would be challenging us and convicting us that we would move into action here in the community that you have placed us in by your sovereign hand of grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. 
If you're wondering what the strategy will be, I've revealed that there are five marks of a stalwart missionary, and we're going to limit our discussion to verse 8 this morning. Lord willing, and that's Lord willing in bold and italicized, because I don't know if we can pull it off, we will look next week to expositing verses 9 to 15. Quite a bit more, much more material, and we'll... Lord willing, look at the four remaining marks of a stalwart missionary. For today, the first mark I want you to see that characterizes this man of God, this stalwart missionary, is that he is characterized by thanksgiving. That's what we're going to focus on today. Yesterday, uh, Tim Hanawell and I had a chance to play a little golf, and as we were playing golf with a couple of friends that joined us, we never met them before, found out that they were uh, professing followers of Jesus Christ, and the one man said to me, hey, what are you preaching on tomorrow? Talk about putting someone on the spot, right? And I said, Romans chapter 1, verse 8. One verse. And we're going to talk about the marks of a stalwart missionary. And the first mark is that he is a man of thanksgiving. And what this gentleman said I thought was fascinating. He said, that's the power of gratitude. Think about that. The power of gratitude. As we talk about thanksgiving, being the first mark of a stalwart missionary, I want you to see two subheadings that will help us to unpack the importance of this mark. First, the reality of thanksgiving. Here we want to unpack and see exactly what is it What does it mean when Paul says in verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. That word translated thanksgiving comes from a Greek word that means to express gratitude or to show appreciation for someone else. And it probably won't surprise you to learn that this term is found all over the New Testament. It is all over the place. Let me give you a a few ideas of where it emerges. This term is used when Jesus gives thanks when he multiplies the loaves and the fish. Eucharisteo. See why you have to stop before you say a Greek word? Eucharisteo. He took the seven loaves and the fish and having given thanks... That's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 1.8. Having give thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. The same term, translated thanksgiving, is used in the prayer of Jesus as he utters a prayer to the Father at the supper in the upper room. Here's what he says in Matthew 26, verse 27. And Jesus took a cup, which we will do in a few minutes. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, Paul says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This term is used to offer thanks to God in reference to other believers. Now we're zeroing in on the context here. 1 Corinthians 1.4, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
Philippians chapter 1 verse 3, I thank my God in my remembrance of you. Colossians 1 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Speaking of the Colossian believers. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 3, we always ought to give thanks to God for you brothers as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And so you can see, I, I had to stop. There, there are numerous other places where this term translated thanksgiving emerges in the pages of the New Testament. The Word of God addresses the importance of being a thankful person. Now notice in verse 8 how Paul the Apostle expresses thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ for all the believers in Rome. I think you would agree with me that when I would say, for the most part, we as Americans are not a thankful people. As Americans, we tend to be very ungrateful. I want to ask you, and I'm going to start very basically, are you thankful for your food? You know, one of the things that we have done... In my family, in the family that I grew up in as a young boy, every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we would pray for our food. And you say, that's a, that's a mere formality. And I, I would beg to differ because it is not a mere formality. It is a time to, to sit together as a family and say, God, thank you for this meat. Thank you for this fruit. Thank you for these vegetables. Thank you for this dessert. Are you thankful for the, the food that God has provided for you? Are you thankful, young people, for your parents? Do you thank your mom and dad? God, God, thank you so much for my father. Thank you so much for my mother. Are you thankful for your grandparents? I had four grandparents, all of them very godly people. They're all with the Lord now. They're gone. I'm so thankful for my grandpa and my grandma, both Barger and Steele. Are you thankful for your home? Are you thankful for the residence that you live in? I've been sharing with several of you, and the rest of you will probably hear about it as we go along, but I watched a, a series on Netflix, just finished it a couple days ago, called The Kindness Diaries. It's a documentary about a crazy British guy who gets in a 51 VW bug in Anchorage and he decides he's going to travel all the way from Anchorage to the southern tip of Argentina and survive on kindness. You say, what does that mean? It means he doesn't have any gas, he doesn't have any money, he has the clothes on his back. And so he would go from town to town to town. He'd run out of gas and he'd say... I'm traveling in this 51 VW Bug all the way to Argentina, and I'm relying on kindness. Would you be willing to help me with some gas? You think that's bad? Then he'll talk to people in a park, and he would say, I'm traveling from from, uh, uh, Anchorage to Argentina. Would you be willing to allow me to sleep on your couch tonight? Excuse me, come again. 
And that's how he lived. And as you watch this documentary, you see people who live in tiny, tiny houses. One episode, he stopped in South America, somewhere I believe in Colombia, and he asked a gentleman, could I sleep with your family tonight? And the gentleman said, we'd be happy to have you into our home. And they walked down the road, and he soon discovered that their house was a van. That mom and dad and baby lived in a van. They shared a bed and they invited this stranger, this, this crazy Englishman, into their house. They show kindness. And that begs the question, are you thankful for your home? Or do you complain about the providential design of God that He has arranged for you? Are you thankful for your vehicle? Are you thankful for your friends? Are you thankful that we live in a free country? This is actually my favorite one I want to challenge you with. Are you thankful for the little things? Say little things, yeah. Like the cherry on your hot fudge sundae. Have you ever just, and I see some of you kind of smiling like, oh yeah, I'm really thankful for that. Have you ever just really stopped? Take off the headphones, shut off the TV, shut off all of the devices, shut off the computer, and you say, God, thank you for the cherry on my hot fudge Sunday. What a delight. Not everyone can enjoy such a thing. Being thankful for the little things, thankful for a warm blanket on a cold night, or a cool breeze on a scorching night. Thankful for a cup of coffee. By the way, that's not a little thing. That's a big thing. Thankful for a beautiful sunrise. Thankful for a beautiful sunset. How about this one? Thankful for a ladybug. Don't you love ladybugs? Do you ever just look at a ladybug and say, we serve an awesome God. And so we express thanksgiving for the ladybug. Thanksgiving for the family pet. There's so many things that we ought to be thankful for. And I believe that many of us need to learn the art of thanksgiving. I'm going to get myself in hot water on this, but I think the younger generation, the millennials, whatever they want to call themselves, they have been taught via our culture to be ungrateful with a capital U. And the younger generation needs to learn from the older generation the art of being thankful. There's an emerging principle I want to share with you here that I see just exploding out of verse 8. And that is this, that perpetual praise helps cultivate a thankful heart. Have you discovered this one? When you're worshiping God, it is impossible to be ungrateful. When you are praising the Lord, it is impossible to have a snarl on your face. Perpetual praise helps cultivate a thankful heart. Let me develop this. I'm convicted that a, a thankful heart is contagious. Have you experienced this with other people? The, the person who has a smile on his or her face... When you're in the habit of praising God, you can't help but express that joy that you experience in your heart to other people. Also, a thankful heart is, is free advertising for the gospel. Think about that. 
People are watching you. They are watching how you respond to adversity. They are watching how you respond to pain. They are watching your marriage. That's a scary thought. They are watching the the general pattern of your life. And a thankful heart attracts people to the gospel. An ungrateful heart further repels people from the gospel that they have already rejected in the first place. There's a third observation, that is the thankful heart encourages other people. You know this from experience. When someone is consistently thankful, it just makes you feel better. It brings a smile to your face. I knew a a gentleman when I was a youth pastor years and years ago, and he was constantly discouraging me. Everything, Everything I did was wrong. The songs were wrong, the messages were wrong, my books were arranged wrong in my office. I mean, I couldn't do anything right. And one day this guy came in to ridicule me, quite literally, and I asked him, this is my elder, I was taking a little bit of a risk here, and I named him and I said, has God given you the spiritual gift of discouragement? Do you know he never discouraged me again after that day? I want to challenge you from the bottom of my heart, if you have this spiritual gift of discouragement on your way out today would you just dump it in the trash bale Drum, dump, jump, just, I get all tongue tied thinking about it because it, it, it's irritating let's stop discouraging people let's encourage people and that will help cultivate a thankful heart finally a thankful heart honors the Lord In 2 Corinthians 4.15, Paul says, It is for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Would it not be a tremendous thing if thanksgiving went, went viral in Christ Fellowship? I happen to think we're close. But wouldn't it be cool if Thanksgiving would just, it became an epidemic and people in the, the community here, they knew that Christ Fellowship, that was the church that is characterized by Thanksgiving. I'll make a guarantee, it would bring a smile to their face. Because even a pagan, even a lost person appreciates someone who is thankful. And so may I ask you today, what are the steps that you can take beginning today to cultivate the discipline of thanksgiving. Move with me now from the reality of thanksgiving to the reason for thanksgiving. There is a specific reason that Paul has in this verse for thanking God for the believers in Rome. Will you read it with me? First of all, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Here's the reason. If you like to write in your Bible, I'd write arrow, reason, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. That's the reason that his heart is overflowing with thanksgiving. Your faith is being proclaimed in all the world. And as I read that sentence, I thought to myself, I think we need to unpack this. Because there are some, some, some words here that are, I believe, misunderstood in the church. And the words are faith and proclaimed and world. We need to wrap our minds around these very important words. Begin with me with faith. I probably don't need to tell you that there is much confusion surrounding the term faith. 
It was actually the documentary I was just referring to, The Kindness Diaries, that I was watching a few days ago, where this unbelieving man becomes friends with a Christian man. And the unbeliever acknowledges, thankfully, his new friend's faith in God. Indeed, he was a man of faith, this new person that he met. But here's where it gets interesting. The unbelieving man also considered himself to be a man of faith. My question is this. Faith in what? Faith in what? Faith in science? Faith in philosophy? Faith in kindness, as good as kindness is? Faith in friendship? Faith in goodwill? Faith in technology? These, these are all good and appropriate things. And so I would ask, in what do you place your faith? But here's a better question. Do you hear it coming? In whom do you place your faith? The Greek word translated faith is pistis. Pistis. And it simply means to trust in the gospel. You see, we are not talking about what Francis Schaeffer described in the late 60s as faith in faith. No, we don't have faith in faith. We have faith in a person. We have faith in a person, and His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in faith doesn't do anyone any good. Faith in faith is faith in anything. It's faith in science. It's faith in philosophy. and It's faith in myself. But saving faith, you see, has content. The content of the gospel now is found in the Word of God. And Paul describes it like this in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as, in, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Often I'll ask people, can you share the gospel in 30 seconds or less? And it's, it's kind of fun to watch the response, right? Usually you see the Adam's apple go up and down, up and down, up and down, right? In a guy at least, right? Why is that? It's intimidating. But here it is. This isn't 30 seconds. This is like six seconds. For what I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That is the Gospel. Now rewind with me to the 16th century. In the 16th century, the Protestant reformers understood in a very intimate way what saving faith entailed. They knew that faith was not faith in faith. They knew that faith was not faith in myself. They knew that when an unbeliever says, I am a man of faith, he may be a man of faith, just not faith in Jesus or possess faith in the content of the gospel. And so they described saving faith using three very important Latin words. Let me give them to you. The first is the Latin word notitia. Notitia. And the definition is, is the basic facts of the gospel. I'm not going to have you raise your hands this week, but I want to ask you, just in your own heart, do you recognize 
the basic facts of the gospel. What we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, lived the life that I could never live. He died the death that I deserved to die. He died on a wooden cross and he was placed in a grave. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. Do you see, do you acknowledge the facts of the gospel? If you do... That's the first component of saving faith. But mere knowledge of the gospel, hear this very clearly, does not save. You recognize that. Do you know there are unbelievers who acknowledge the gospel? Let me go one step further. Demons acknowledge the gospel. They, they know perfectly well about Jesus Christ and how He lived the life that I could never live and died the death that I deserved to die and He died on a wooden cross and God raised Him from the dead on the third day. But demons are destined for hell for all eternity. They do not possess saving faith. The Reformers added a second word. It's the Latin word ascensus. A census. The definition is, not only do you see the facts of the gospel, but you have the conviction that it's true. Now we're getting closer to saving faith, but we're not there yet. I see the facts on the table. I say, I, 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 I embrace that both in my heart and also in my head. But let me say this, unbelievers can have that kind of faith as well. And, I would add, demons have that kind of faith as well. They see the gospel laid on the table, and they, they embrace it. They believe it. But you know their ultimate destination. And so you see the importance of moving to the third description of saving faith. It's the Latin word fiducia. Fiducia. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is personal faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate. Some of you may be afraid. Drina and I have a friend who's deathly afraid of flying. Our friend can say this, Notitia, I see the facts of how a plane flies. A census, I believe these facts about how a plane flies. Well, it sounds to me like you have faith in the plane. Let's all go, our families, let's go to New York City. No way, I'm not getting on that plane. Do you see what she has? She has notizia. She has a census. She does not possess fiducia, personal trust in the plane, if that's possible, but you get the analogy. And so in our lives, in order to have saving faith, we must see the facts of the gospel on the table, believe the facts, and have a conviction that those facts are true, and then bank all our hope and future exclusively on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Paul thanks God for the Christians in Rome who are proclaiming their faith, he has something very specific in mind. The faith that they're proclaiming is the saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is an exclusive message. This is the message that says Jesus is the only way to heaven. Jesus is the only path to heaven. If I could tell you how many so-called Christian books I've read over the last 10 years that said Jesus isn't the only way. He's one of the ways. It would make your head spin. I have a section of books in my shelf that I call bad books. Bad books. I know it's not very, it doesn't sound very uh, intense or anything, but they're bad books. 
On my Goodreads account, I have a section called Bad Books. Stay away from this garbage, right? There are people, even pastors, who name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that say there are many roads to God, there are many paths to God. Nothing could be further from the truth. Look back at verse 8. Paul thanks Thanks, my God, through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being proclaimed in all the world. We need to reconcile what that word proclamation means. The Greek word translated proclaim or proclamation means to announce or to proclaim. It means divine declaration. And I want to unpack this for you just for a moment. I want to look at the rudiments of proclamation. What I mean by the rudiments of proclamation is this. Maybe I should have called it this. The nuts and the bolts of proclamation. When you see that Paul is is filled to the brim with thanksgiving for the Romans who are proclaiming the gospel, what is he referring to? What is the essence of proclamation? Now, some of you might try to write these down, but you'll probably get behind really quick. So I'm just going to fire these away. Let's look at them. When Paul talks about proclamation, he means proclaiming the forgiveness of sins. He means proclaiming the way of salvation, the exclusive path of salvation. He means proclaiming the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's referring to proclaiming the the revelation of the living God, proclaiming the commands of God, proclaiming Christ as crucified. When he speaks of proclamation, he refers to proclaiming the gospel of God. He refers to proclaiming the gospel boldly, proclaiming the gospel faithfully, proclaiming the gospel fearlessly, proclaiming the gospel obediently, and proclaiming the gospel consistently. You see, there is no substitute for this kind of faithful proclamation. And I'm here to tell you that when you, when you make a commitment to faithful proclamation, there's a whole series of consequences that will result. And some of you know what those consequences are. Some of you may lose friends. Some of you have people who won't talk to you anymore because of faithful proclamation. Let's look then at the response to this ministry of proclamation. First of all, as I've already indicated, people react... To proclamation. In Acts chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, this is just fascinating to me, greatly annoyed. You know what the translation of that is? They were chapped. Right? Their hides were chapped. They were greatly annoyed. Why? Because they were teaching the people and someone yell it out. Proclaiming, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Acts chapter 17, verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And so when we think about the faithful ministry of proclamation. I don't want to paint this this rosy picture like you're going to proclaim the gospel and every person's going to say, I choose to turn from my sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ because not all of them will. Why? Jesus says, 
The road is, is narrow. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, and narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. The good thing is that some people will actually respond positively to this ministry of proclamation. It's very interesting because in Acts chapter 7.32, we read this, When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some mocked. Can you imagine that? A pastor or a teacher or a missionary or a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ who who tells someone, who tells a, a group of people or a crowd of people that the Lord Jesus Christ, He rose from the grave. And what's the response? Mocking. Mocking. And you'll see that a lot, especially in our culture. But move forward with me and notice how some people actually respond to this proclamation. In the very same verse in Acts 17.32, after we read that some mocked, we see this, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Just imagine being one proclaiming the truth. Some mock. They may throw stones. They may blog about you. Right? They may write a book about you, write an article about you, gossip about you. But the people over here say, we're not going to mock you. We're going to listen to you. We're interested in this message. We'll hear you again about this. I love Acts 16, 14. One who had heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And so I want to remind you that it's, it's vitally important that we follow the Romans' example here who were faithfully proclaiming the gospel of God. There's one more word that we need to wrap our minds around. It's the word world. This is a, a word, it's the Greek word cosmos, that has caused much confusion, at least in conversations I've been in. Because obviously at this point, the gospel has not literally made its way around the world. Would would just nod your head if you see what I'm saying. Look in verse 8. It says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Here's what I hear people say. All means all. Have you heard that one? All means all. Shake your head if you understand that all does not mean all here. Because I'm not seeing many head shaking. Are you with me? Here's here's the story. The faith is being proclaimed in all the world. Has the faith been proclaimed to the Indians in North America yet? The answer is no. No. And so how do we wrap our minds around this? When you see that phrase, all the world, and this is worth writing down. Trust me on this. When you see the phrase, all the world, remember this. It's one of two options. All without distinction or all without exception. All without distinction or all without exception. So think about this. Can it possibly mean in this particular verse, all without exception? It can't. It can't because the Indians haven't received the gospel yet. The gospel has not made its way. It has not exploded yet into that portion of the world. And so it certainly doesn't mean all without exception, but it does mean all without distinction. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. 
All without distinction, right? Because your faith is being proclaimed in all the world. All without distinction. And so Paul uses this grammatical device of hyperbole to express deep appreciation and gratitude for their passion to spread the gospel where? Throughout the Roman Empire. And it is spreading like wildfire. Some of you are anxious to see the gospel of God spread like wildfire through the streets of Whatcom County. Is anyone with me here? We want to see the, 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 the gospel of God spread like wildfire on Main Street. We want to see the gospel of God spread like wildfire on Grover Street in Linden. We want to see the gospel of God spread like wildfire in Alabama Street and all throughout Bellingham and Whatcom County and the rest of the world. I want to close by looking at some misconceptions now about missions. These are misconceptions that I believe that some of you have subtly picked up over the years, and there's, there's five of them, or six of them rather. Number one, missions, and by the way, these are all misconceptions, they're all lies. Missions is for the select few. That's a misconception, that missions is for the select few. Number two, missions is for the exceptionally gifted. That's a misconception. Number three, missions only takes place overseas. Do you know that's one that somehow, and I, I only blame myself for this one, when I was a little boy, I used to think missions takes place over there. But I needed to figure out that missions took place in the playground, right? Missions isn't over there. Missions is everywhere. Fourth misconception. Missions, and this is an important one, missions is combative. That is, we will thrash those pagans, right? That is a misconception. That is a lie. Next week we'll learn more about William Carey. He's an example of a missionary who is committed to loving people, not fighting people. In a recent biography, Michael Haken says that although William Carey and his colleagues were not averse to pointing out to their Indian hearers, they judged to be weaknesses and imperfections of Hinduism and Islam, they did not begin with such a critique, end quote. What's Haken saying? He's saying that when William Carey and his friends went to India, by the way, Jerry and I are not a cahoots today. I had no idea that the, that the focus country was India today. Isn't that something? When William Carey went to India, when he stepped onto Indian soil, he didn't start his ministry by condemning the Hindus and condemning those who embraced Islam. Rather, he built bridges to them. He loved them. He became friends with them. He was not averse to telling them, telling them that they were wrong. He was not averse to telling them that they were on the fast track to hell, but he began by loving them. And there's great instruction for us there. Number five, this is probably the misconception I embraced the most in my younger days, and that is that missions is the ultimate aim of the church. Missions is the ultimate aim of the church. May I say that is a misconception. John Piper says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. That is to say, there are people all over the world, all the ethnos, 
There are some out there who are not worshiping. Worship does not exist in their lives. And so therefore, we are called to be a stalwart missionary and bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number six, missions is optional. How many of you know that that's a misconception? It's optional. That is not true. And so tie all this up with me and we'll close. The first mark of a stalwart missionary is thanksgiving. It's thanksgiving. And I want to close by having you open your your bulletin, if you would do that, and pull out this flyer. As I studied this verse, I got to thinking, I want you, like I have before, by first of all, cultivating a thankful heart. And you'll read on the back of this flyer, I will cultivate a thank, thankful heart by... I want to challenge you that sometime today to write down how you will begin this week to cultivate this thankful heart. And then number two, I want you to think about the many ways that you can spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ. I will spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ by teaching, by developing a tract, by personal conversation, by being a good witness on the baseball field, by preaching, by teaching, by writing, by friendship. You fill in the blank. There's one last misconception I have to share with you. Some of you are familiar with a man by the name of Francis of Assisi. And he has a quote that is attributed to him. And it's a quote that is very, very popular. And it goes like this. Preach the gospel. And if necessary, use words. Have you heard that one? Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. And I think St. Francis of Assisi had... A good and godly motivation. I think his intentions were on track. I think he he had a heart for people and a heart for the gospel. But here's the problem. He was dead wrong. Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. If you don't use words, you're not, someone say it, preaching the gospel. No words, no gospel. No content, no gospel. And so... May I encourage you and challenge you to write down how I will spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ this week. My prayer is this, that as you cultivate a thankful disposition, that your love for the gospel would grow in accordance with your thankful disposition. And when your love for the gospel grows, your love for the nations will explode. And what's going to happen is Dan Newton and his team are going to start getting calls from people. Hey, do you need any help on the missions, Matt? I would like to help. I would like to lend my time. I would like to lend my talent. I would like to lend my treasures. I would like to help the missions ministry action team with the missions program here at Christ Fellowship. We have this budding missions program led by Dan and his team, and I'm excited about it. We have much to accomplish, much to do. The Great Commission needs to be fulfilled, and God will use us to help fulfill it. Let's pray together. So, Father, thank you for uh, walking us through this very short verse and alerting us to the importance 
of the discipline of thanksgiving. Thanks again for Paul and his example of what it means to be thankful. Thank you for the Roman believers who were spreading a passion for the supremacy of Christ throughout all the Roman Empire. May we do the same. May you help each one here to take this challenge seriously. How will I cultivate the disposition of thanksgiving? How will I spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in this community and to every nation? Lord, give us a heart for the nations. I I want to thank you for for Dan Newton and the team that has taken the challenge of missions uh, so seriously. And I pray that as they deliberate, as they meet, as they continue to develop strategies for uh, raising up missionaries and encouraging missionaries and equipping them, that great things would take place in the days to come. That you would be greatly glorified as we as a congregation develop, along with Paul, a heart for the nations. In Christ's name, amen.